You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter, so you can uh, turn there. We'll get there in just a minute. In this, moreover, I give you great praise and proclaim it. You alone, in preeminent distinction from all others, have entered upon the thing itself. That is the grand turning point of the cause. Have not wearied me with those irrelevant points about popery, purgatory, indulgences, and other like baubles rather than causes with which all have hitherto tried to hunt me down, though in vain. You and you alone saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned, and therefore you attacked the vital part at once, for which, from my heart, I thank you, for in this kind of discussion I willingly engage. These are the words of Martin Luther from his Bondage of the Will. Uh, written to Erasmus. Erasmus had written a diatribe called On Free Will, where Erasmus had defended his concept of the free will of man, uh, particularly the the freedom of man's will in matters of faith and salvation. Uh, Erasmus defended the idea that the human will is completely free from any outside influence, completely free especially from the influence of God. Uh, This is from Erasmus. Quote, by freedom of the will, we understand in this connection the power of the human will whereby man can apply to or turn away from that which leads to eternal salvation. Okay, so for Erasmus, man is able to turn to or from God, to resist or to come to God of the power of his own free will. Okay? So for Erasmus, the will of the unregenerate man is able, always able. Whether or not we would consider someone elect or unelect, everyone's able. So this is the essence of a concept of the will that we'll call the libertarian concept of the free will. Libertarian here has nothing to do with a party or a political movement, anything like that. Uh, libertarian, as applies to the human will, is just that idea that humans make decisions without any outside influence. Okay? So if people have a libertarian free will, then God could exercise no control or no influence over any human decision. That's the libertarian concept. We would all be sovereigns. We would all be the complete sovereign over our own decisions. God would have no role, even at the point of conversion of accepting or rejecting the gospel. Now, Luther, on the other hand, argued that people have free will, but in a compatibilist sense. Okay? That is that we all do as we please, but God works in and through our affections, the constraints, the, the, the attitudes, experiences that we have, so that our will is always compatible with his will, his eternal will, his will of purpose. So Proverbs 21.1 puts it this way, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So that's the compatibilist biblical view of the human will. So that's what the argument was about. And for Luther, this argument, this argument over God's sovereignty and the bondage of the human will was, as he put it, central to the cause. It was central to the Reformation itself. Uh, It was the grand turning point of the cause. It was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned. It was the vital part of the reforms that, that Luther and the others engaged in. Right? In fact, this doctrine of the human will, the bondage of the human will, and the sovereignty of God and salvation 
is central to a consistent orthodox understanding of the gospel itself. All right, so that's what we're going to see today. So here's the plan. We're going to first see the biblical compatibilist view of the human will and the sovereignty of God. We're going to do that by looking at 1 Peter 1.3. Then we're going to look at the competing view of the human will, libertarianism, and some of its implications, how it's applied in Roman Catholicism, how it was applied at the time of the Reformation, is still applied today. Also in the Arminian Remonstrance, and in the Socinian Heresy. And those are just maybe words that don't mean a whole lot. We'll go, we'll go through all those. The goal of everything is for us to understand a biblical view of God's sovereignty. We want to avoid in adding anything to grace. And we do that by understanding that salvation is all of God. And so that we can offer Him the gratitude and the glory that is His due and His alone. Right? So that's our goal. So 1 Peter 1.3. Should have that open. It says, starts off with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd love to preach on that today. Uh, but it's going to have to wait. There's, that's Peter's concentrated confession. There's a lot of great theology and Christology in that. Uh, but that's going to be for another time. For today, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And I see there's more to it. But again, that, we'll get to all of that, Lord willing, someday. But for today, it's more than enough for us to dwell on this. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So we're going to break that up to its parts so we understand exactly what's being declared there. First of all, it speaks of being born again, or what we refer to as being regenerated. And if you remember, that's what Jesus told uh, Nicodemus, that a man must do in order to see the kingdom of God. Man must be born again, must be regenerated. So what is it? Well, it's a work of God. It makes us alive spiritually. It moves us from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, they tell us that before regeneration, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay. Well, it's obviously not a reference to being physically dead because before we're regenerated, we're not physically dead. So it's spiritual death. Well, what is spiritual death? We can understand what spiritual deadness is by understanding what physical death is. There's a good analogy there. I'm not going to go into the details like we did in Sunday school. If something is dead, if something is physically dead, if you were to come upon something in the woods and it was physically, you think it's physically dead and you wanted to know, you would apply physical stimuli. Does it respond to sound? Does it respond to light? Does it respond to pain? Does it respond to touch? If it doesn't respond to physical stimuli, you say it's physically dead. It's a good sign. Same is true in the spiritual realm. If you're spiritually dead, you're unable to re respond to spiritual stimuli, like the gospel. Right? The gospel calls to the spirit of a person, and if the spirit is dead, it's unable to respond. Unable. Right? Romans 8.8 8 puts it this way. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. Okay? Not that they don't want to, they cannot. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. This is what we refer to as total inability, or total depravity, or radical depravity. This is the state of man prior to regeneration. We are totally unable to respond to God in a positive way unable to respond to the gospel. We can't do anything truly good prior to regeneration. We're we, not capable of a single truly meritorious act, a purely righteous act, like coming to Christ would be. Okay, so regeneration, meaning born again, means giving life to what was dead. Okay, and what was dead? You. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? That's what it says. We, you and I. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. 
And here I have to make this connection. When we say you, we must be referring to your spirit. And your spirit is nothing really different from your will. Right? The human will is just that intellectual faculty, that conscious intellectual faculty of the human spirit. It consists of two parts, body and soul, or body and spirit, whatever you want to, however you want to say that. The, the material and the immaterial. This immaterial thing is your human will. It's the, the human will is the intellectual part of that will, of that spirit. Okay? And the human will is dead prior to regeneration. Luther says this of free will. It's a little bit of a long quote, but it says it perfectly, okay? Quote, if we do not like to leave out this term altogether, so he's talking about free will, if we do not like to leave out this term altogether, which would be most safe and also most religious, we may nevertheless with good conscience teach that it be used so far as to allow many free will, not in respect of those which are above him, but in respect only of those things which are below him. That is, he may be allowed to know that he has, as to his goods and possessions, the right of using, acting, and omitting according to his free will. Although at the same time, that same free will is overruled by the free will of God alone, just as he pleases. But that Godward, or in things which pertain unto salvation or damnation, he has no free will, but is a captive, slave, and servant, either to the will of God or to the will of Satan. That's a, as good a definition as you're going to get on biblical free will as you're going to find anywhere. Unless it may be this one. John Calvin. Quote, When the will is enchained as the slave of sin, it cannot make a movement toward goodness, far less steadily pursue it. Every such movement is the first step in that conversion to God, which in Scripture is entirely ascribed to divine grace. End quote. Okay, so prior to regeneration, the human will is dead. It's not able it's dead. It's helpless. It's free to do as it pleases, uh, but all it can please to do is sin. Right? Even after regeneration, the human will is not free from the sovereign hand of God. We're never free. The human will is never free in that sense. Okay. So if, I'm, if that's the way we want to describe free will, would you, would you want to call that a free will? It becomes a semantic. If you want to call it free will, I mean, we do as we please but always subject to God's sovereign hand. And prior to regeneration, our free will is only free to sin. Calvin puts it this way, quote, In this way, then, man is said to have free will, not because he has a free choice of good and evil, but because he acts voluntarily and not by compulsion. Well, this is perfectly true. But why should so small a matter have been dignified with so proud a title? Right? Okay, so the, the unregenerate human free will is free in the sense that it does as it pleases. It's not free from slavery to sin. It's in bondage to sin. And, and no man's will is, even after regeneration, your will is not free from the sovereign hand of God. No, we're, we're never free in that sense. Okay? So that's what it means to be born again. We need to be born again because we need to be made alive spiritually so we respond to the gospel. Because prior to our being born again or being regenerated, we're completely unable to do so, being dead and our trespasses and sins. All right, so that's what it means to be born again. Now, the Scripture says that God has caused this. He caused us to be born again. That's what it says, right? It's caused by God, not by the human will. Or do you have an Arminian Bible? If someone has an Arminian Bible, it might say something like this, Blessed be you, who according to your great and powerful free will caused yourself to be born again. Right? I don't 
think that's what it says. God worked this rescue. God works the rescue. I, I, t- I told the kids, like, I'm getting tired of the word salvation. Because it's overused to the point of we forget what it means. It means a rescue. We needed a rescue. We needed to be saved, as, as we would use the term in normal language. Save them. They need to be saved. We needed a rescue. And it's God who works the rescue. Okay? And why did he do it? Because of his great mercy. Uh, was in First Peter 1 and verses 1 and 2, the last, like, I don't know, year and a half that I've been trying to get through this. I'm all the way to part of verse 3 today. It's all part of his decree of election, all part of his mercy, all part of his foreordination, it's foreknowledge. Okay? All men are completely helpless and hopeless and need this rescue. And God in his mercy has chosen some to rescue his elect. And he affects that rescue in time by first regenerating his sheep. First making us alive. He changes our affections. He changes our minds. He gives us a righteous fear of God. Helps us understand that we're sinners subject to the wrath of God. That we need a Savior. That's what he does. God has caused us to be born again. Salvation is from the Lord. That's Jonah 2.9. He has caused us to be born again. God has caused us to be born again. That's important. He has begotten us in the King James. He has done this. He has done this. As he does all things, as he causes all things. Never back down from that. The scripture is explicit, unequivocal. God does all things. Psalm 136.5 Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and in seas and all deeps. If it happens, he does it. Here in this verse it says that he has caused us to be born again. That's what he did. He caused us to be born again. It doesn't say he encouraged us to be born again. He made it possible for us to be born again. Uh, He permitted us. Uh, He gave us a spark of life, a seed of righteousness. He caused us to be born again. He did it. He caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what he did. He did it. He caused us to be born again. He caused it all. He didn't cooperate in it. He didn't hope for it. He didn't want it or suggest it or even command it or even just command it. He caused it. He did it. So what I'm getting at, this can't be interpreted away as God something does partially or cooperatively, synergistically with the human will. Being born again is something God does. God alone. Okay? That's what it says. One of my favorite verses, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost of all, or who am I, of whom I am chief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. He didn't come in to make salvation possible. He didn't come into the world to to make something available that then the indomitable human will acquires in and of its own self. That's not what he did. He came into the world to save sinners. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, not any act of the human will, has caused us, not encouraged us, or made available or made possible, to be born again, to be made alive 
because we were spiritually dead. We were completely incapable of responding to the gospel. All of the glory for our inheritance, for the hope of heaven, belongs to God because he caused it all. Okay? We don't share in it. It all comes from him. Uh, Jim did an exposition last week of 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Remember that? That was in connection with Sola Scriptura. Fits here too, right? His divine power, which is not the human will, has granted to us all things, which would include our faith and our repentance that pertain to life and godliness. What a blessing. What a blessing it is that he has caused us to be born again. That was our only hope. So he's caused us to be born again. So what does it mean for, for the doctrine of the human will? Again, just summarize that. People have the freedom to do as they please, but God exercises absolute sovereign control of every human thought and act. Prior to regeneration, human beings can do as they please, but all that they can please to do is sin because they're subject to the slavery of sin. They're spiritually dead. They're unable to turn to God. After regeneration, we are able to do purely, truly righteous acts, meritorious acts, because he has changed our will and affections. But we are still not free from the sovereignty of God. We are still slaves to God. We're still subject to his sovereign will. That's a good thing. All right. So I want to think about the implications of, these, of the two different views of the human will on some of the doctrines of grace. And I'm, I'm not ex- explicitly doing the tulip, but those of you that are versed in that sort of thing will, will see this. Uh, we just do some of it. Total, total inability or total depravity. Again, in the compatibilist view of the human will, as we've seen, we must be born again. We're spiritually dead. Our will is incapable in and of itself of turning to God. We're totally unable to turn to God in faith. We must be born again. It's a, a simple compatibilist view of the will. The libertarian view, quite different. If the human will is completely free, then it has to follow that the human will in its natural state is able to turn to God. Right? And that, that ability must be available to every human being in their fallen natural state. Right? So total depravity would be a lie. God could not. God doesn't cause us to be born again under that view. God doesn't cause it. We cause it. We don't need to be born again, actually. We already have that thing inside of us, that power that can turn to God. We don't, don't need to be made alive. Okay? So either the references in Scripture to us needing to be born again or God causing us to be born again are a lie, or... My understanding of what it means to be born again is completely wrong. It must mean something else. I don't know what. What about election? In the compatibilist view, uh, God chooses a people for himself in eternity past, and at some point in time, he regenerates them. He causes, their, causes them to be born again, as we just saw. Changes their minds and their affections so that they can hear the gospel, they can receive the gift of faith and repentance and, and all the other benefits of their salvation. Okay? Libertarian view, again, if the human will is totally free, election is impossible. Election is a violation of the freedom of the human will. God cannot choose an eternity past. He has to just wait. Any references to election are lies. Okay? If God, if God is not sovereign over the human will, then he can't choose. He must wait to be chosen. It doesn't cause anybody to be born again. 
Uh, what about the irresistible grace or the irresistible call of the gospel? This is really the, the central one. In the compatibilist view, having elected individuals to salvation, God calls each of the elect effectually at some point in their lives. There comes a point in the life of each elect person where they hear the gospel, they understand their need for a Savior, and they put their faith in Christ. Right? Now, nobody's forced against their will. Nobody's forced against their will. Nobody comes to Christ against their will, and nobody rejects Christ against their will. No, that is not, no one's suggesting that. We're saying is God causes the will to change. The libertarian view is the call of God, is the call of the gospel ever irresistible to anyone? No. No, it can't be because the human will is all powerful. The human will is sovereign. So grace must always be irresistible. Okay? So if grace is always resistible, it pushes us in the direction, this is where the seeker friendly thing kind of comes in. We've got to be really persuasive, right? Because the Holy Spirit's not helping us out here at all, guys. It's all up to us. So we've got to get the coffee temperature just right and we, the roast just right. We've got to get the music just right. We've got to get the emotions ginned up just right with the music. We've got to keep the talk short and emotional so we can persuade people, right? Now we ought to persuade people with all, everything that we've got, we ought to persuade people of the truth of the gospel. But we, we understand that ultimately salvation is of the Lord. Okay? So some of you may wonder about implications for the extent of the atonement or for the uh, perseverance of the saints. Uh, there are implications, but there's also implications keeping you here for an hour, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, your attention would be limited, and your, um, it would require your perseverance. That's a little Calvinist joke. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Some of you, it's your first time here. I'm not the normal preacher, so just so you know, give it, give it a, a few more days, a few more weeks. Uh, all right, so one other implication I do need to spend some time on is the implications for one of God's essential attributes, his attribute of knowledge, omniscience. Uh, one, that's one of the central attribute, attributes of God. It's, it's taught clearly in Scripture that God is all-knowing, God is omniscient. In particular, I want to look at God's prescience. God knows the future. Uh, the book of Isaiah declares very strongly with great repetition that uh, God knows the future. God actually asserts prescience as a, as a test of divinity. That is, if, if you cannot tell the future, you are not God. Okay? That's what he says. This, this is a condition of being God. So the only one that can tell the future is God, is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Okay? He knows the future. Isaiah 41.23 says this. This is just one example. If you read through the, the last half of Isaiah there. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. This is God speaking through Isaiah to the idols of the people. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Prescience is a test of divinity. Okay? If your God does not know the future, your God is not real. Your God is an idol or a demon, a worthless thing that cannot save. Okay, so if the human will is free from God's sovereignty, can God know the future? Can God know the future if he doesn't intervene, if he, if he doesn't exert his lordship of control over human decisions? Can he know the future? No. It's logically impossible. The future becomes unknowable, logically unknowable. Okay? Even for God. 
The future would become completely unknowable. If he doesn't if he doesn't assert control over your decision, then he can't know what it's going to be. If he knows what it's going to be, that implies that there's control asserted over it by something or someone. Okay? For your decisions to be free, they have to be free and they're unknowable. They have to be completely outside of his knowledge. Okay? Think about it. If he can't control human decision makings, human decisions and decision making, he can't even tell who will exist. Right? Think about you, you're here today, right? <laughs> There's a lot of decisions that went into you being here, aren't there? Like if your mom and dad had, hadn't married or there or there or there, you know, back in generations, you wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be you. It would be somebody else. Well, if God can't control human decisions, he can't control who will exist. He can't say that he can raise kings or depose kings. Those, are, those things are done by human decision making. He, he couldn't say that he works all things together for good. He can't work anything together. He can't control human decisions. They affect good and bad. He, he, he couldn't do it. If he can't decide, if he can't control human decision making when it comes to who will repent and put their faith in Christ, he doesn't know who's going to be at his wedding feast. He doesn't know who's going to be with him in heaven. He can't write any names in, in the, the book of life. He doesn't know anything. He's completely clueless about the future. And that blasphemes God to say that, to believe that. Okay? But that's an implication of this doctrine of libertarian free will. It is a direct denial that God causes us to be born again. And because if he doesn't cause us to be born again, then he, does, he can't know anything that follows. Okay? Okay. So what does this have to do with the Reformation? This is the central point of the Reformation, defending the sovereignty of God in salvation against the sovereignty of the human will. When we ask, how is a man made right before God? If we answer that the reconciliation is all due to the sovereign hand of God, we are safe in the gospel. If we start to say, well... God cooperates with the human will. Then now we've added in, we've opened this door of the freedom of the human will to allow other things in. Okay, well, so if, if it requires the cooperation of the human will, then how is the will predisposed? What must happen? Well, maybe we need to baptize infants. And that helps them somehow get the grace that helps them later on. Or maybe we need to get some merit from somebody else, from Mary or the saints. Or maybe we need to kiss a bone of a dead guy. Right? All that stuff that gets added in, that gets added to grace. The door is opened by saying that something other than the sovereign hand of God is responsible for any part of salvation. All right, now, uh, Cornell's going to discuss the sacramentalism of the church. I think that's in two weeks. Uh, all the things that were added. Uh, Jess is going to look at the addition of works that violates the solas, sola fide, uh, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm going to be focused on just this point of the human will and how the opponents of the Reformation uh, saw the human will and what the implications are of that. So we'll do this. Don't worry, this is quicker. This was all, the setup part takes a lot longer than the actual whatever this is part. Okay. <laughs> so what's the Roman Catholic doctrine of the human will and the sovereignty of God? Uh, I'm going to take you to the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s. Now, Council of Trent was a, a reaction to the Reformation, but it did serve to 
reveal exactly what the church's doctrine of the human will was, and it is this doctrine that the Reformers reacted against. Okay? Uh, so this is from the sixth session on justification, Canon 9. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to, to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Okay. Uh, Jim mentioned this in his first message a couple of weeks ago, focused on the first half of the canon. I'm focusing on the second half. This is the claim that it's necessary for salvation that there will be a free act of the human will. Uh, if anyone says that it is not necessary that a person be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, then there to be that person who makes that claim is to be condemned. So the church is saying that the human will, uh, that the person must gin this up in their own human will, and if you deny that, then you're going to go to hell. Um, just so you know, the Roman Catholic Church has declared that we're all going to go to hell. Any, any Christian, anybody who believes that salvation is by faith alone is, is bound for hell. And they've never changed that. So he's not my pope. Okay? All right. So for the Roman Catholics, then, you must have enough of something that the church falsely calls grace. Something that allows you to then begin down the path of performing the works and the rituals and following the traditions and doing all the weird stuff that eventually gets you good enough to go to heaven or maybe not quite to go to heaven, but you get to go to purgatory and then maybe there's some other stuff that you do while you're there or somebody will help you out. Okay? But what I have to point out is it is the libertarian view of the human will that opened that door. Okay? When Luther and the others said, no, salvation is all of God. All of it. That shuts the door. All the other junk that you want to add in there uh, never has the opportunity. Okay? So what are the implications for this strange view of the human will uh, on these doctrines of grace? Exactly what we did before, the libertarian view. Now they've added in works and sacraments that nullify the gospel entirely, right? that make it a heretical view. Uh, but as far as the, the view of the human will, it's exactly the same as just the libertarian view. Mankind is able. Uh, mankind is able through some sort of justifying, sanctifying grace that's remitted at baptism to turn to God and perform those works. Uh, Roman Catholics would deny election generally uh, because it requires a denial of this libertarian free will. Grace is always resistible in Catholic doctrine. It's never inevitably, inevitably the case that a person uh, will, be, will respond in faith to the gospel. It's just an act of the human will. It's made possible but not inevitable by grace remitted at baptism. Uh, so then the reformers, this was the incumbent theology that they, that they reacted against. Now, they reacted to a lot of stuff. If you read what the reformers did, they reacted to a lot of the, the really gross corruption that was going on in the church, the gross immorality of the popes, the indulgences and all of those things. But, but what they were really getting to was the purity of the doctrine of Scripture. Like, God, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. So they stood very, very strongly for the sovereignty of God in election. This is from Luther. Quote, We are people who have been born, not fashioned by man, but begotten. This is not our work. As little as a child contributes to its being born, so little do we contribute to our being spiritually born. Great analogy. William Tyndale, the great English reformer, quote, Faith springs not of man's fantasy or from man's mind. 
Neither is it in any man's power to obtain it, but it is altogether the pure gift of God poured into us freely without all manner doing of us, without deserving and merits, yea, and without seeking for us, and is God's gift and grace purchased through Christ. And then Calvin, we maintain that by his providence, not heaven and earth and inanimate creatures only, but also the counsels and wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which he has destined. God has caused us to be born again. Or do you have a Roman Catholic version of the Bible in front of you today? God caused us to be born with sufficient ability that we could be baptized and then we get more grace and then we could do more of the works and listen to what they say that we really don't even know what they're talking about and we'll go get the bones and the... the what was the one today from R.C. Sproul? A piece of straw from, from the manger, a piece of the burning bush, and if we can go and visit all these enough and kiss them and worship them enough, maybe we'll get to get out of purgatory a little quicker. It's a fantasy. It's not it. God caused us to be born again. God caused us to be born again. He had elected us in eternity past, and he had to work out the rescue, and so he did by causing us to be born again. We had no means to do so on our own. It's all of God. So this principle of the absolute sovereignty of God, the the absolute inability of man, it's a principle recovered and so well defended by the Reformation saints uh, against these hellish doctrines of Rome. Uh, J.I. Packer, before he, he, he well, J.I. Packer, he once summarized the doctrines of grace that were defended in the Reformation this way. This is a really good quote. Quote, for to Calvinism, there is really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology. The point that God saves sinners. If you get that, that is really the point of Reformation theology. God saves sinners. It is God who does the saving. God saves, God does all of the saving, and what he is saving are sinners, people who are incapable in and of themselves of saving themselves in any way or contributing in any way. Right? So they very ably defended this doctrine, but there are always objections. Jacob Arminius, uh, he is one who gave organization, when we talk about Arminianism, it's named after Arminius, he gave organization to a, a reaction against the doctrine that resulted in the Arminian Remonstrance of 1610. It's really nothing new. You just wanted to go back to the Roman Catholic doctrine of the will. Now, Arminius did not go back to all of the sacraments and all of the works, uh, but he did want to go back to this, this doctrine. Wanted to, so, put it this way, Arminians leave the door open. Right? They, they believe that the human will is the first, the first act toward salvation is an act of the human will. So they open the door, but they don't walk through it. The Arminian Christian doesn't walk through the door and add works and sacraments. Remain in the faith. Okay? For the Arminian, God willingly gives up his sovereignty. He makes himself subject to the human will so that human choices can be real and voluntary. And I'm using scare quotes for those of you on the, for, on the recording. God doesn't want robots, right? He wants real choices. God would never force someone to put their faith in Christ or prevent someone who really wanted to from coming to Christ. It's not fair for God to elect and regenerate some and not others. It's not fair for him to require salvation in Christ, but only uh, make that available to some. Okay, I, just, I, don't, I don't have time for those, uh, all those objections. We could talk about them sometime if you want. There's no threat in any of those. But I'm going to just repeat what Jim said last week. We don't get our doctrine by what seems or what feels or what God ought to do or what God ought not to do. 
What does the Scripture say? Here's what the Scripture says. God does what He pleases. God has mercy on whom He'll have mercy. God hardens whom He'll harden. All who are appointed to eternal life believe. No one comes to the Son unless drawn by the Father. God has caused us to be born again. We understand our theology based on the Scriptures. God has caused us to be born again. Implications of the Arminian view. God is, a man is able. They would deny the total inability. God is, man is able of his free will to take the first step toward God. Um, again, I don't want to. I want to be careful that I don't paint Arminian brothers and sisters with the same brush as the Roman Catholics, because Arminians are our. There are Arminian Christians, right? Uh, they they would adhere to the solas that Jess is going to enumerate. That the faith is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It keeps them orthodox. Uh, they're they're wrong on the source of faith. For the Arminian, the human being is the source of faith. Okay, and for the Bible. God is the source of faith. Uh, election, election is not again just can't be. It's a general idea, not specific. There are no no names written in the book of life. God has to wait, waits for the indomitable human spirit to say, "Okay, I'm good now. You can put me in the book. Keep an eraser handy because I might change my mind." But all right, that's the Arminian principle. Uh, God cannot elect. Election is impossible. Okay, election is choosing. And if God chooses, then that is His will that's being exerted. He doesn't, he's not waiting for the human to make His decision. Grace is always resistible. Uh, what about the prescience of God? What about that? So we saw that if the human free will is completely free from God's sovereignty, then God can't know the future, right? So God can't logically be prescient. For the Armenian Christian who hasn't fallen into heresy, for the Armenian Christian, they would say, well, no, God does know the future. Yeah. God, can't, God doesn't control human decisions, but he does know the future. Okay? They, have to maintain, they have to maintain God's prescience in order to remain a Christian, right? to remain in orthodoxy. So they just maintain them both. Okay? Jim has talked about a chicken coop theology, so they just take... The libertarian free will, and they put it over here, and they take the prescience of God, and they put it over here, and as long as they don't touch, we're okay. All right, you just leave them. Now there is a way to reconcile those. There is a way. There isn't a way to reconcile those, but there is a way to understand the contradiction. Now the Arminian Christian just maintains the contradiction. That's what keeps them safe. That's what keeps them orthodox. But there is a way around that contradiction. It was first formulated, in my knowledge, by the Sozinis back in 1500s. Uh, they came out of the Reformation, the Italian Anabaptists. They formulated a system known as Socinianism. Uh, the, the Latin name for Sozini was Socinius. We're only going to look at part of that. They were blatantly heretical on a lot of fronts, mostly in their doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but we're, their doctrine of the human will today is called open theism or openness theology or free will theism. So they just took those things out of the chicken coop and they said, okay, we believe in libertarian free will. We are wondering about the presence of God because these things aren't, don't connect. So they said, well, we've got to throw one of these out. So rather than throw out the bathwater, the libertarian free will, the idea that the man is sovereign, they threw out the baby. They said, well, God, you're right. God doesn't know the future. All right, that, that, that's... So they removed the contradiction, 
Logical contradiction removed. But you see the problem, right? Their God doesn't know the future. So their God is not God. Their God is not Yahweh. Their God is not the God of the Bible. God says, God knows the future. God says, if you don't know the future, you're not God. By his standard, if, if you're God, the thing that you worship doesn't know the future. It's not the God of the Bible. It's an idol that can't save. So that puts the uh, open theist outside of orthodoxy. Okay? God has caused us to be born again. We've got to get God right. The God of the Bible, the only true God of the universe, the omniscient God, He has caused us to be born again. So, I hope you can see why God's sovereignty is so important. So Luther said, it's the grand hinge upon which the whole turned. It keeps us safe in the gospel. Okay? The human will has no power to do anything authentically good apart from the regeneration, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. All right? Everything about our salvation from election, regeneration, justification, glorification, all of those terms, all related by the sovereignty of God, by the eternal decree of God, connects them all together. Okay? So in the end, this doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation, it does what all true things do. All true things exalt the glory of God. The more true things you know about God, the more he's glorified. Okay? This does that. It exalts his glory. So this is God. This is our Father God. This is the one we worship. Perfect in knowledge. He's perfect in knowledge. Absolute in power. He waits for nothing. He's dependent on no one. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is mighty to save. In Him and in Him alone are found all of the elements of salvation, of a salvation for a people for His own possession and for His glory. Uh, somebody asked me which sola I was doing today. And I told him I'm not doing any of the solas. But, I'm, but we're all doing one of the solas. Well, maybe we're all doing two of the I don't know. You figure it out. But definitely, soli deo gloria. The glory of God alone. Alone. We add nothing to salvation. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we do wish to glorify you as your children, as your image bearers. We know that if we have been, uh, if we've been saved, then the faith and the repentance came from you. They were gifts that you gave us. And so it's all yours. It's all due to you. And so we give you all the glory for all that you have done in our lives and, and in and through us. And so we, uh, we give you our praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.